Zeitgeist Turkey, coming to you weekly from Istanbul. Your smart guide to the state of Turkey. Welcome to Zeitgeist Turkey. This is Jansu Çamlıbel. Warm greetings from a sunny Istanbul. Finally, the spring has arrived. We had a rather cooler April than normal in Istanbul, which kind of helped, I guess, during the lockdown. Honestly, I've always told my foreign friends that May is the best time for traveling to Turkey to be able to explore the country without the heat. But not this year, obviously. It seems like we'll have to wait until there's a cure for this novel virus before we start traveling again. Personally, I feel so much better with the lovely weather outside, even though we stick to the isolation rules. Today, my partner in crime, John Selçuk'i, is of course on the other side of the line. But we also have a guest who is going to help us understand what is happening with the Turkish economy during the COVID crisis. Esen Çağlar, welcome to our podcast. Good to have you. Hi Jansu, hi Jan. Good to be with you. Hello boss. <laughs> a little introduction for the audience. Esen, please correct me if I'm wrong. You are a political economist by training. Currently, you are with the Policy Analytics Lab, PAL, which is based in Ankara, and uh, you are joining us from Ankara today. Yes, uh, yes, exactly. PAL is quite a young think tank, which also does consultancy since 2017. And before joining the PAL, you worked at UNDP, OECD, and TEPAV um, for various positions, and you specialize on regional economic developments as well as foreign economic relations. And you also served and still serve as a consultant for various governments on various projects. You served for the Turkish government on several projects, if I'm not mistaken. And you used to teach at Bilkent University in Ankara. You have a master's degree from the Kennedy School at Harvard. You're a Princeton graduate of political economy. So that's quite a resume. Thanks for joining us, Esen, once again. Thank you, thank you, And of course, our own Jan Selçuk'i is an economist by training. So these two bright brains are going to help me make sense of things in the foreign currency market of Turkey. Although I'm almost economy illiterate, I know this much. The exchange rate in Turkey was being held under control with extreme caution from the government at least the last two years. And it feels like now the genie is out of the bottle. The dollar is rallying against the Turkish lira, broke through the 700 threshold in the last days. 7 lira was kind of the psychological threshold for some time, right, Esen, if I'm not... Yes, yes, it has been. Yeah. Take it from here and tell us why this happened. Maybe we cannot call it a crisis at the moment, but there is a risk of crisis that has been increasing over the past few weeks, if not months. That also makes Turkey's case a bit peculiar compared to other emerging markets. And let me explain that. First of all, Turkey needs dollars. I mean, Turkey needs foreign currency and mostly dollars because of three main reasons. I mean, we need to pay back our debt obligations that we have accumulated over the past period. And Until February of next year, we have to pay about 170 billion dollars. This is mostly from the corporate sector. We have to find the dollars one way or another, and we have to pay back that debt. So that's one side of the issue. The other is the import. Turkey is a country with traditionally high levels of current account deficit, although it, it is going to shrink this year, but we still import, so we still need to pay that back. And the third thing, which has always been an issue, 
issue, but since 2002-3, it was declining, but it started coming back again, which is the dollarization. Turkish people, households, firms, enterprises, see dollars as an insurance mechanism to basically insure themselves for risk or economic mismanagement or for other things. So uh, to secure themselves, they go to dollars. They need to buy dollars. So all of these combined increase the demand for dollars. What the Turkish Central Bank has been doing on the monetary policy front, they've been pumping Turkish liras into economy in the fight against COVID. So that makes the case worse for Turkish liras standing uh, against the dollar. The combination of these, in my opinion, creates the currency crisis or the risk of currency crisis more imminent. At least that's the perception. And there is more politics involved than uh, economics or monetary policy. And I think we could maybe go back to the last crisis that we had, which was 2008-2009 crisis. There, uh, Turkish economy contracted by 5%. It was a very substantial contraction. But Turkish government could sell this as if the crisis was tangent. The, the crisis didn't hit us. I don't know how successful they were, but most people believe because the currency didn't move. The dollar didn't move that much. So Turkish lira was strong, even though Turkish economy was contracting by about 5%, which is the same level of contraction expected for this year's GDP for Turkey. So there is a lot of political sensitivity towards keeping the level under control, even though we have a floating exchange rate, which means as the sovereign country, we, we are open to capital flows. We set our own interest rates and we let markets decide what the exchange rate will be. So this is the basic international system that we follow. But I think this is being challenged now with this crisis and uh, with uh, the political sensitivities involved or the political economy of uh, this currency management. Since the first coronavirus positive case in Turkey, the Turkish Central Bank's reserves fell nearly 20 billion dollars. That's correct, right? Yes, yes. And by the way, John, please jump in whenever you feel necessary. Esan, you you already pointed out the fact that Turkish economy needs dollars because of the demand from the Turkish people, because they still, no matter what the government in Ankara did to reverse this trend, you explained well that Turkish people still see dollar as an insurance, given the complexities of the Turkish economy, plus the unforeseeable political developments, local and international. But we understand that there is an expectation from Ankara, from the Trump administration, for the swap lines uh, by the Federal Reserve. A few days ago, the U.S. ambassador to Ankara, David Satterfield, attended an online webinar organized by the Atlantic Council. And this question was posed to Ambassador Satterfield. And he actually said that the Fed itself is in conversation with many governments, but they are doing it independently. What is Fed looking at in terms of providing this facility to the other countries? I think that's a very valid issue or question. I mean, I think we made it clear that there is a high demand for dollars. And the question, obviously, is supply. Where, where do you find the dollars from? So in ideal conditions, I mean, you would go to international markets to borrow, either in terms of equity or debt, but that, that's becoming more difficult. For Turkey itself, it's been more difficult because of the increasing risk premium, the CDS level. Uh, so that's currently out of question. You know, we cannot borrow from international markets. The other option is going to IMF. Again, that's not, it doesn't seem to be on the table right now, again, because of political reasons. But that's uh, a political uh, decision by the Turkish government, obviously. And, exactly. and I would yeah. like to discuss this further because I also know that John has quite an interesting survey that they had done recently. So we can yeah. go into the details of this. 
Yeah, exactly. That's one of the options that should be on the table for any country, not for uh, Turkey. The other option, if you don't go to IMF, you basically let the exchange rate adjust. And that's, again, undesired. If it goes to a level of 10, for example, from 7 to 10 you know, in the course of a month, then that has very undesirable impact on you know, the, the corporate sector, you know, on individuals. So uh, most people wouldn't want it. So it's not, again, a sign. Yeah. Let me interrupt here. Not only does it have undesirable results, but it would, it's a down spiral from there on because as the lira keeps depreciating, people domestically at least will feel more reluctant to trust the economy and there will be a further flight to foreign exchange or non-lira uh, instruments that would actually further devalue the lira. And where does that stop? I mean, that stops when the government says, okay, we are no longer have a free exchange rate uh, regime. We are going back to pegging or we are going back to fixed uh, currency regime. Yeah. So I think the, the, the outcome yeah. is beyond undesirable. Yeah, exactly. Let's leave this aside and let's come to the fourth option, which is the swap uh, option uh, with the Fed. I found the exact words uh, from Ambassador Satterfield when he was asked about the swap line. He said, quote, Turkey has been in direct contact, as have many states, with the Federal Reserve. There are certain requirements set by the Open Markets Committee of the Fed with respect to potential eligibility. They are financial, monetary requirements and conditions, and they are not politically linked. This is what Ambassador Satterfield yeah. said. Yeah. So please go ahead. Yeah, I think that's a good overview of this mechanism. It's a pure monetary policy mechanism from the perspective of the U.S. economy to protect the American economy against systemic risks coming from the liquidity crisis of uh, other uh, key partners, key trading partners for the U.S. This has been in place uh, since 2008. They had this arrangement with five key economies back then. These were Canada, England, Japan, Switzerland, and European Central Bank. So these are the main trading currencies basically for the US. The mechanism is rather simple there. It's a loan agreement in which uh, pay your own currency. For Turkey's case, if we ever get this, we would get, for example, $1 million into our reserves. And in return, we would give back 7 million liras if the exchange rate was to be 7 then. And then this would be done for a fixed period of time. When this period ends, you get your money back and you uh, with a certain interest rate. So that's uh, the uh, basic logic behind the swap agreement. You basically exchange, you swap your currencies with another central bank. But the question is whether it makes sense for the US to sign this. Uh, let me let me jump in there maybe yeah. a sense. I, Please just. So from a trade volume perspective, Turkey is definitely not an important partner for the US, nor the US for Turkey. So despite the two countries' long bilateral relations and cooperation in the area of you know, foreign policy, security and other areas, trade hasn't been the, the strongest form of relationship. Yeah. So from this perspective, I diverge from what the ambassador said on that webinar, Jansu. And the reason is, there's no reason for the United States Fed to extend a swap line to Turkey based on economic merits or economic importance. So the only reason it makes sense for the United States to extend a swap line to Turkey would be from a point of strategic importance of Turkey for the U.S. And if that's the reason, then this whole decision becomes very highly political, unlike what the ambassador has suggested. And there, we actually know for a fact that as 400 come into play and other considerations vis-a-vis -vis North Syria 
come into play when the US is trying to reach a decision, or at least they are a part of the bargaining table, let's say. Well, John, I tend to agree with you there. And there is a perfect example which affected the Turkish economy two years ago. That was the Andrew Brunson case, Pastor Brunson. And that was the time the Turkish lira lost a lot of its value against the dollar. And we were talking about a six lira threshold at that time two years ago. That decision not to release Pastor Brunson at the time when President Trump asked President Erdogan was in a way countered by sanctions by President Trump and that hit the, the Turkish economy quite dramatically in August 2018. And when we were asking about this to the US authorities, they were saying this is very political, this is a political decision. And by the way, the Turkish government was saying it is nothing political, it's the due process and it's uh, purely a uh, judicial. So we know that these things are interrelated in the course of the Turkey-U.S. relations. How important you are for the U.S. economy, there is a second criterion we should remind ourselves of, which is how prudently you manage your micromanagement and how, how prudently you manage your macroeconomic balances. That's the second criteria. The first criteria, as John said, whether your default would impose or bring a systemic risk to the U.S. economy. And the second criteria is how prudently you manage your macroeconomics. And, uh, and there we have a problem. <laughs> we are not doing that well. There, <laughs> so uh, that I think, to be honest, I would be surprised if this happens, if the two administrations pull this off in terms of having the swap line between the two central banks. So that would be surprising, but we're at time of interesting things, so maybe, maybe this could happen, but I would assign this a very low probability, and I wouldn't base my near-term calculations on this. It's very clear that the U.S. side would not be satisfied with promises. Ambassador Satterfield said in that meeting that the U.S. side is not in possession of any assurances by the Turkish government that the S-400s will not be activated. So if you reverse this sentence, it's very clear that they would ask, if possible, written assurances, technical assurances from the Turkish side, which I doubt President Erdogan is in a position to give at this point because of his relationship with Russia and especially given the sensitivity of this relationship in the Syrian context. But, I mean, let's come back to the economy. And, uh, Just, may, I, may I jump in please to do. actually please help do. you steer it uh, to the Turkish economy? So, from this last remark that you made, it seems that the swap and it seems that domestic politics stands in the way of a swap line from being realized because simply... Politically speaking, Erdogan is not likely to give up the S-400s, both from a domestic politics perspective, but also from a regional politics perspective. So that's out for political reasons. Now, if you go back to the IMF option, in the recent poll we did, 70% of the population said that they're against borrowing from the IMF in this time of hardship because of the coronavirus. And, you know, 70% means this sentiment or negative sentiment is across the board, meaning not only Erdogan's own supporters, but also from supporters of other political parties. So that's strike two for you, which means also IMF is not an option because of domestic political considerations. So those are the two lines of foreign money that I know are available. And please let me know if there are any other available resources, but to my knowledge, no. 
So then we are left with what we have uh, at hand. And maybe from that we can come to the state of the Turkish economy and what the impact is. And on the domestic side, SN, I see, I see two options. One is obviously printing money, which we've been doing since end of March. The second thing is obviously is a strategic reallocation of resources, which we don't seem to be doing or we don't seem to be discussing, at least as part of our economic policy response to the economic fallout of the COVID pandemic. So from here, how do you think Turkey will yeah. able to uh, weather the impact of this massive yeah. crisis? The options, again, are limited on that front, uh, as far as I can see. The extent of the packages, how big they are, the size matters uh, in that regard. And the most we could have done until now, it's basically 2% of the GDP. The package that was announced, the size of that package was around 2% of G- GDP. And uh, when you compare this with... Turkey's own uh, previous packages, for example, the one in the global crisis, it was about 6% of GDP, or uh, the existing packages implemented by other countries, which are around 10% of their GDPs, like Spain on Italy, Canada even larger. So the fact that we have a limited fiscal pace definitely makes things worse. And printing money, I don't think is a viable option because of what we just discussed. It is deepening uh, the currency crisis. And with the newly printed Turkish dollars, they try to buy dollars to insure themselves against increased uncertainties of these times. So I think the policy options there are limited. And when you look at uh, why the Turkish response has been rather limited, it's yes, the fiscal space is one side of it, but also there's maybe this notion uh, or the belief that this will be rather short. This period, the recovery process will come quick and we'll uh, be able to do a quick recovery. We'll fall down fast, but we'll again be able to jump back again uh, rather fast. So that, that's, I think, the presumption or the, in my opinion, overly optimistic assumption in Ankara that, that I see. I, I agree with you, actually. Yeah. Let me maybe contribute by saying why I don't believe that this will be a V-shaped recovery like we saw in 2001. The most straightforward answer is because back in 2001, when we were doing the reforms as a part of the IMF standby program, the global economy was at a very good stage. There was a lot of money going around, a lot of interest in emerging markets, and Turkey was a shining beacon sort of in the region and in the world as it started to restore uh, its confidence in its macroeconomics. That's no longer the case. So in the uh, post-health crisis era, where we will have to deal with the economic fallout, our usual trading partners and the usual trans business cycle of the world economy is not there to sort of help us pick up. So that's actually, I agree uh, with you, Essan, in that assessment. And finally, obviously, our policy options are narrowing quite today. By the way, guys, coming back to... How long would it take for Turkey to recover from the effects of the COVID crisis? That's the question. And that question was analyzed by TEPAV, the Economic Policy Research Foundation of Turkey, where SN used to work. And uh, their forecast was if the outbreak were to last for a year, they say that the Turkish economy might shrink by 40%. Would you agree with the assessment? That's, I think, among the scenarios that I see. It's one of the worst-case scenarios. It's 
certainly one of the scenarios on the table, but there are uh, other scenarios as well. Can you share more optimistic scenarios yeah. with us? We all need that, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I think that the baseline or the basic scenario is what the IMF has announced in their global economic outlook, I think a couple of weeks ago. And there, the contraction expected for the Turkish economy was 5% for 2020. Yes, for, for exactly. We have to admit that all calculations are based on scenarios which are in turn based on assumptions on certain things that are unknown at the moment so it's really difficult to accept but i think it will be somewhere between five percent and forty percent wow uh, there is a huge variation there's, there's quite a wide margin <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and i think what we could do is we could assign probabilities to each scenario let me tell you a few things that i think is relevant for assessing the damage Uh, that uh, this crisis is, is causing. Uh, I think, uh, first of all, let, let me tell you that it's rather difficult to isolate the impact of COVID from the other economic factors that already existed uh, before March. I mean, Turkish economy, as we discussed, was already in bad shape. Also, the global economy was in bad shape. Before this year started, the economist was talking about the fact that global economy is on the verge of a recession because of the US-China trade war, because of the increasing debt levels, because of the oil uh, crisis. And when you come to Turkey, there were many uh, deep problems uh, that were already in place. So it's not COVID that led to these issues. So it only triggered, it had a big triggering effect. It, it, it was like a big kick on the back in terms of creating a first supply shock and then a demand shock. To be honest, we are not used to receiving such shock. That's why there is very, very high level of uncertainty because it first started as a supply shock. The previous crisis of Turkey were mostly demand shocks. You know, we didn't encounter supply shocks, you know, and supply shock meaning we cannot produce because of a reason. And, and that, uh, in this case, is the virus itself and the lockdown measures. The best analogy that I can come up with is having earthquakes every other day for about two months or even longer. Maybe an earthquake that is uh, of the magnitude of uh, not 7.5, but 6.5, which is killing 150 people you know, in every shape. Esan, you are talking the, about uh, the twilight zone here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but it, it is the case. I mean, that's, you know, we don't know how long it will last. And uh, we don't know the impact or the damage it has caused in the production networks, in the production system. We only have some initial assessments, uh, some initial uh, data uh, from March and April, which show us the surface of the scar. How big that scar is, maybe we can see, but we cannot uh, see underneath uh, the scar yet. I think when we will be able to assess uh, completely, when the data comes, reflecting what really went on in March and April in these sectors. The surveys tell us that more than 50% of the companies uh, lost more than half of their revenues in March. That is expected to continue in April. There is a huge amount of contraction in certain sectors like aviation, hotels, restaurants. And also somewhere around 30 to 40% uh, contraction in manufacturing like automotive uh, textiles. These are big contractions and For example, the contraction in automotive or manufacturing is not entirely due to COVID, but it's because of the demand shrinkage in the EU markets or in global economy, which had already started before the COVID. The Turkish Central Bank's governor held a press conference last week, a digital one, of course. He said the year-end inflation forecasts of the Central Bank 
was revised, it was lowered from 8.2 to 7.4. And he said that this is because of the COVID measures and all that. Is it realistic, you think, to revise the forecast? I think the inflation was a problem for Turkish economy, especially since 2018 when we had the dollar crisis, dollar upsurge, let's say. And the impact it left on the inflation was substantial. We were for some time back to two-digit inflation levels. But since this crisis is demand crisis also, it's both the supply is shrinking and also the demand is shrinking. I don't think inflation at this stage is the number one concern. We could expect, in my opinion, a downward trend in inflation. I would say that that will be to be expected. I agree with you, Essen. There are two factors that actually act against each other. One is obviously demand is so suppressed that there is only consumption of food and beverages and, you know, maybe some sports equipment, I don't know. But there is really not the kind of demand right now out there, consumer demand, that that could cause inflation. So that's one part. But on the food side, these restrictions on travel and logistics, although they are more lightly restricted, is driving food prices up, particularly in Istanbul. I've been following that uh, closely. However, Jansu, as Essen said, I don't think at this particular point in time, inflation is a major concern. It's not the priority, yes, but also the demand to create inflation is simply not there. So what I gather from both of you, both of your words, is that as citizens, we should be looking at the unemployment rates and also the foreign currency exchange rates, right? I mean, I'm thinking about personal economy. That's why I'm asking all these questions. <laughs> Yes, I mean, for the future of the short term and, and long term, I think uh, for the short term, especially the value of the lira is uh, quite critical, both from the perspective of the private sector, but obviously if it gets too difficult for the private sector, then it becomes a banking system problem, which may lead to other things. So that's something to keep an eye on. And for not only economic reasons, but also for social and political reasons, Unemployment, obviously, is a very important critical indicator, particularly if you don't have the kind of resources to mitigate the social fallout of long-term unemployment. And yeah, I would add a third thing to watch, which, which would be the coverage of the social assistance programs. Like how many people mm. are, are being covered by this uh, social aid programs? I think after uh, every crisis, we will have to broaden the coverage of our social policy because from what we have experienced unemployment moves to a different level after this crisis this happened in 2001 yes it jumped first and then it went down a bit but it was still higher than the previous three crisis years in 2001 the same thing happened in 2008-9 we started to get used to the level of 10 percent which was too high in the 90s, but we started experiencing the 10% unemployment levels and it became the new norm for Turkish economy. And I think we will have to become used to with 15, maybe 17% unemployment rates in the years to come because of not only economic issues, but also technological changes or the creative destruction that goes on in the economy or the productivity increases that also come after every crisis. So yes, unemployment is something to watch, but how the government deals with the impact of unemployment and how it covers the segments of the society who are negatively affected by these changes would be the third thing that I would closely monitor. We are going to wrap up soon, but two questions. 
One question has been bugging me uh, along the COVID crisis. When I see all those stories about the gold and gold prices and how the gold prices are surging, is it related to the fact that the consumers feel insecure and they are resorting back to the traditional investment tools? Is that the reason? Exactly. It's a, exactly. It's a sign of uncertainty. Uh, uncertainties rise, the price of gold increases. That's one of the basic premises and, of uh, the economic development. And the second question is: Well, I don't, I don't have dollars, so I don't, uh, I don't get hooked up with this question much. But I get this question because I'm a journalist. They think that I know everything. So I get this question a lot from some fellow Turkey citizens. Whether if the trend in the USD vis-a-vis uh, Turkish lira continues like this and the sharp rise continues, would you expect the Turkish government to come up with more extreme measure regarding uh, the USD accounts of Turkish citizens in Turkey? Jansar, I think that's a very extreme option that would very seriously result in Turkey being cast out of the global financial system. So I don't really foresee such a dramatic measure being considered in the future. I also agree with Jan. Given the high levels of dollarization, I think even going to IMF would be a more popular measure. Wow. Okay. I understand. (laughs) Well, it has been a really enlightening conversation for me. Thanks for joining us, Esen. And of course... I uh, I enjoyed it, Jan. As, as always, John, you, your wise analysis and also the figures from your studies are always very helpful for me My to pleasure. explore these topics. Before I close, would you like to add anything, any final uh, comments? I can add one comment maybe to give an uh, extreme example. You know, one little town in Italy actually decided to print their own money and their central bank is a photocopy store by the town square. So now they are printing their uh, own money. Uh, I I hope we never get to that situation where we opt to print our own money in the local photocopy store, which I doubt will be the case. With that positive note, let me say, uh, thanks to everyone for listening and thank you, SN, uh, for joining us and uh, see you all uh, next week. Well, that's, that's a very romantic story. I like it. I like it. <laughs> I like the fact that you brought it up, John. Thanks. See you next week.